1959, director Alfred Hitchcock and star Cary Grant gave the world a thrilling drama full of mystery and wit that still brings us to the edge of our seats. In 2021, we try our first whiskey from the BTAC collection. The film is North by Northwest. The whiskey is Thomas H. Handy Sazerac. And we'll review them both. This is the Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are checking out, for our final episode of Season 3, Alfred Hitchcock's 1959 film, North by Northwest. Brad, this is a really momentous occasion for us, man. Not only is it the end of Season 3, but I think that we kind of uh, went through all of Hitchcock's really huge classic movies maybe too soon i think this is like the last huge one i think it might be and it's the second time in three seasons i believe that we've ended a season with an alfred hitchcock film it is yeah i I really loved it when we did rear window at the end of season one last season i made the mistake of thinking that we would both enjoy back to the future and i put that as our final episode of the season and i said you know what no more controversial season finales let's do something fun again I knew that you had seen and loved North by Northwest. I've watched this a ton of times. I also love this movie. So this was kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, it's a really obvious pick for us. It's a great movie with a great cast. I, Cary Grant, I, as I get older, I recognize that he's not the best actor uh, who's ever lived. He's he's very one-dimensional. However, growing up, he was hands down my favorite actor, and he still has a special place in my heart. So This movie, having seen it so many times as a child, I still am just floored at how great of a movie it is and honestly just how well it holds up. I'll tell you what, Brad, I I think I might disagree with you there about Cary Grant, though. And I think maybe a week or two ago, I probably would have agreed with you. But I've been doing this project since we've been kind of in lockdown and I've been trying to watch an average of one movie a day. Like, even if it's divided up across the day and I have to press pause and things like that. I just really thought that's a lot of movies. It's a lot of movies. But I I mean, you know that I love watching movies. And I figured, like, if I'm not going to be reading, I'm not going to be doing anything productive. I might as well try to knock out some movies I've never seen before and revisit some stuff for the podcast. So I've been trying to watch a movie a day. And over the last, I'd say, two weeks, I've watched three movies with Cary Grant in them. I watched uh, Bringing Up Baby from 1938. I watched His Girl Friday. And I watched this film. And I have to say that Cary Grant is a much better actor than I gave him credit for. And part of that is because I think he knew, like, internally, that at the end of the day, he was always playing Cary Grant. And I think that his ability to find nuances within that persona is actually way better than we give him credit for. Because in Bringing a Baby, he's playing Cary Grant, but he's playing kind of like a nerd And it works really, really well in his girl Friday. He's like this really cynical newspaper man. And he leans into the Cary Grant charm, but he's also kind of a dick in that movie. And it works really, really well. And then in this movie, he leans into the kind of like cool, calm, suave, collected Cary Grant. And it works perfectly. And so, like, yes, I think that he knew that his selling point was being Cary Grant. 
just the same way that like a John Wayne knew that just showing up and being John Wayne was going to put the butts in the seats. But I think sometimes with actors like that, we don't give them enough credit for finding nuance like within that persona. Well, it honestly reminds me of Nicholson, right? Mm. That his persona is anger. And yet when you watch him over the countless different movies that he's in, he explores anger so differently with so many different characters that you you get to see a, such a wide range, even within that one character that he always seems to play on some level, right? Mm. Yeah, I think it's a good point, man. So anyway, all that to say, I love this movie. I think Cary Grant's fantastic in it. This is not the kind of movie that would have worked as well with a Jimmy Stewart instead of a Cary Grant. And, you know, Hitchcock worked with both actors pretty frequently. And I, I love the differences between the two leading men, but also the types of movies that work better for both of them. I don't think Cary Grant would have worked in Vertigo, and I don't think Jimmy Stewart would have worked in North by Northwest. Oh, not at all. You, you For this movie, you needed somebody who was just so, like, cocksure of himself that everything he did was right that every move he made, that every acting decision he made was perfect, that uh, Cary Grant was just the right choice for this movie. And But I will say, the leading lady opposite of him, I thought was spectacular. The, the chemistry that they had on screen was phenomenal. Yeah, Ava Marie Saint is great in this movie. This is only the second film of hers that we've done on the podcast after On the Waterfront, which was her debut performance. And she plays such a different character in On the Waterfront, where she's this girlish, innocent, you know, fighting against corruption kind of character. And in this one, she's, you know, a secret agent. She's a spy and she's using sex as a tool and she's seducing everybody, but totally keeping her calm through the whole thing. And she's such a great counterpoint or foil, I guess, in some ways to Cary Grant. Oh, you're that type. What type? Honest. Not really. Good, because all these women frighten me. Why? I don't know. Somehow they seem to put me at a disadvantage. Because you're not honest with them? Exactly. Like that business about the seven parking tickets? What I mean is, the moment I meet an attractive woman, I have to start pretending I've no desire to make love to her. What makes you think you have to conceal it? She might find the idea objectionable. Then again, she might not. Think how lucky I am to have been seated here. And like, if you had asked me, do you think that the actress from On the Waterfront will be like a sex symbol in one of her future films? I probably would have said no, because the way that she played that character just had absolutely it was it was a very virginal kind of character. But she is so good in this movie and she plays this character so well and so believably I don't think she gets enough credit. I think that we probably could give her the credit that she deserves, Bob. But first, we should probably get to America, nay, the universe's favorite segment. <laughs> the universe. We're expanding this with every episode. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to jump into our favorite segment here, which is called Brad Explains. This is where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen often for the first time. This is obviously not Brad's first time seeing North by Northwest. And maybe it's your first time watching North by Northwest. I would highly recommend if you want to get on a classic movie kick. This is one of those films that just holds up so, so well. It is incredibly entertaining. It moves at a great pace. 
And, and Brad, I'm excited to hear you explain the plot for our listeners. But for those who have not seen it, I would highly recommend going and checking out the movie and then maybe coming back after that to listen to the rest of this episode. But Brad, can you walk us through the plot of the film North by Northwest? I think I might be able to, Bob. North by Northwest is about a New York uh, advertising marketing executive named Roger Thornhill, who is kidnapped by a group of apparently foreign spies. Uh, you kind of find that out later in the movie. And they are convinced that he is this man named Kaplan who is on their tail. Uh, he's a federal agent. Thornhill obviously is not a federal agent and tries to convince them of this over and over and over. He's framed for murder. He's on the run from the law and he's continually trying to figure out what the heck is going on. And in the midst of this departure from justice and, and this pursuit of what the, whatever the truth is, he meets this woman named Eve Kendall on a train who protects him from the law and seemingly forms an interest with him and has a very, very raunchy, just over-the-top sex scene uh, for 1959. Uh, <laughs> but anyways, so Eve kind of protects him and helps him out. And as as the plot thickens, he finds out that Kaplan is actually a made up fictional human being that the American government has just created to spook Van Damme, the, the bad guy. And eventually he is approached by the U.S. government and asked to continue playing the role of Kaplan um, in order to protect Eve, who is actually another secret undercover agent. It all culminates at Mount Rushmore in a famous scene where he's shot in the cafeteria and then he is shuttled off to the hospital. It was a fake shooting. He goes and saves the girl. She almost dies. They're climbing on Mount Rushmore. I, Bob, it's just like perfect set piece uh, to finish this movie. Yeah, definitely. This is just like the epitome of a fun adventure movie. And Brad, on my quest to watch movies every day, I've also been watching a couple of the older James Bond films. Uh, I just rewatched Goldfinger the other day, which is fantastic. But it's so interesting to see how well this movie laid the groundwork for the James Bond franchise to come. Like it has that sort of, you know, hopping from continent to continent thing. It all happens in the United States, but you go from New York to Chicago to, you know, the middle of nowhere in Illinois to South Dakota. You're going like all over the place following Cary Grant on this journey to try to, you know, clear his name to not get murdered by these international spies, essentially. And it is just such a fun movie. And I guess I want to start, Brad, by kind of comparing it to the film that Hitchcock did immediately prior to this, which would be Vertigo. As we talked about in the Vertigo episode, that movie gets really, really dark. It is it is one of the most psychologically disturbing movies I've ever seen. And I've talked to a lot of people who've said they can't really get into it. And I, I understand that. But like when it clicks for you, it is like it's just disturbing. It's a, it's a hard movie to get through. And it was a commercial failure. And I don't think it's a coincidence that after the failure of Vertigo, which was this very personal movie for Hitchcock, that he would kind of default to, OK, well, I'm going to make the biggest crowd pleaser I possibly can. You know, and it still has elements of those classic Hitchcockian sex and suspense touches. And they're all through this movie. But at the end of the day, Brad, I don't know if I would necessarily characterize this movie as a comedy above anything else. But it is much more lighthearted than the kind of films that he had been making, you know, immediately prior to this. 
Well, you just have so many beautifully witty moments in this movie that I feel like only Cary Grant could really deliver. Mm-hmm. You know, when when he's trying to escape from the hospital from the American government and he jumps into the room with this other woman and she goes, oh, stop. And then he goes, oh, I'm sorry. And he goes to leave. And then she goes, no, stop. <laughs> and he goes, oh, and then it just fades yeah. and it moves to this next really serious scene. It's little touches like that, that I just think this script knew that it wasn't necessarily a serious drama. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it, like it just knew that it wasn't trying to be a vertigo to just bring a, a sense of lightheartedness to it. Mm. And, and I'm really happy that you brought up Bond because I feel like the Bond movies tried to be these fun, adventurous, like spy dramas. And they're they're great. I, I love the old Bonds. They're cheesy and they're corny. But at the same time, I'm never going to rate them very high. Like they're they're not always great movies. Whereas I think what Hitchcock does here in in North by Northwest is what all of the Bond movies should have tried to be. Hmm. Like you have a you have a credible villain who's actually scary. You have an interesting plot where a man is unsuspectingly drawn into the spy world. Um, you have a convincing uh, temptress that isn't over. Like I wouldn't say that she's overly sexual, but she is. She is like alluring enough that it. I I don't know. I just think that this is everything a Bond movie should have tried to have been. Yeah. In the sixties and seventies. Well, part of it is that it doesn't get needlessly bogged down in plot details, and I noticed that from the very beginning of the movie. Like this really does jump right into the spy stuff. You get a, a really brief scene of Cary Grant uh, with his secretary kind of walking down wherever they are, Madison Avenue, and jumping in a cab. And she's telling him all of the different places he has to be. And he's going to meet these people for drinks. He gets out of the cab. He immediately goes in and forgets that he, you know, he, he says he forgot to call his mother. And that's when the mix up happens. At the moment, he beckons somebody over to send a telegram. The the like the telegram boy is shouting the name Kaplan, George Kaplan. And the spies are watching. And so when he puts his finger up to say, hey, come over here, they go, oh, it's Kaplan. And then immediately they kidnap him. The whole plot, like everything is already in motion. And I love that they didn't needlessly give us like 10, 12 minutes of Cary Grant doing advertising stuff and, you know, approving a new campaign. We didn't need any of that. We got (laughs) enough of an idea of who he is in that first four minutes. And then it's like immediately. You are thrust into this weird, confusing mix-up, just like Cary Grant is. Yeah, we we didn't need any Don Draper action, you know, <laughs> up in here. We just needed to get right into the kidnapping and right into what the movie was really all about. Yeah. And I, I think one of my favorite things about this movie is that it leads us into another movie a few years later called Charade, which we will do on this podcast. Yes, we will. I actually have I- it have it on the schedule now, Brad. Okay, beautiful. Your, your hints I, have finally been taken by me. Because <laughs> I, I love Charade. And I, I won't spoil Charade too much, but Cary Grant plays literally the exact opposite character th- like that he could play in the movie Charade. And I just love, I, I, I don't know, I just love Cary Grant's ability to play the exact same character and yet the roles are exactly flipped. Like in this movie, you have him 
in a place where he's trying to convince everybody that he's not a secret agent and that he, you know, and then I, there's that scene with Van Damme where he goes, oh, you're playing the the not a government agent, a New York advertising executive. And now you're trying to play the the scorned lover and blah, blah, blah. And I think you're doing such a great job. And, and, and Kerry Grant's just sitting there going, look, man, I don't know what I am anymore. And so when you move into a movie like Charade, which, you know, we'll get to later, it's just so fun to see the roles reversed. Yeah, Brad. And I think we've been kind of beating around the bush here a little bit. We might as well talk about these performances here. I've already kind of said what I think about Cary Grant. I think he's fantastic. I think he is the perfect actor for this movie. He always had that balance of a guy you can take seriously uh, in a romantic role, a guy you can take seriously in kind of an action role, the guy who carried himself with with so much sophistication, but then also really, really leaned into the self-deprecating thing. And a lot of people in the 2000s and the early 2010s would, would say that uh, the closest thing we had to that was like a George Clooney, who also really liked to lean into the self-deprecating stuff. But And I love Clooney, and I think he's a great actor. But I don't think anyone's ever going to do it to the extent that Cary Grant did it. And he really puts all of those tools to use here in this movie. Yeah, the the amazing thing about the way Cary Grant just puts himself forward on the screen is that he's just so confident in who he is in his like apparent beauty and charm and ability to woo women and, and people in general. And yet, on top of that, he's just always making fun of himself and always making these lighthearted quips. And he's got that terrible transatlantic accent that just, I don't know, it makes him endearing to you. And, and it's the reason he really is has been one of my favorite actors most of my life. Yeah, for sure. It reminds me of Bogart in that way. Like, Bogart was not the most conventionally attractive guy. He had that really weird voice. He was short. And yet, for some reason, all of that really worked together to create this on-screen persona that nobody else can duplicate. And I think that's the important thing here is that, you know, we've heard how many different impressions of Cary Grant over the years. We talked about it when we did our Some Like It Hot episode. And yet, He's the kind of guy you poke fun at a little bit, but you poke fun at him because he's one of your favorite actors and he's one of the most enduring movie stars we've ever had. Even now, you know, 60, 70, 80 years after we've seen him on the screen. Well, an opposite of him, you know, as the villain in this movie, you have James Mason as Philip Van Damme, this this international spy of renown that is selling, you know, secrets to ostensibly the Russians. My secretary is a great admirer of your methods, Mr. Kaplan. Elusiveness, however misguided. Wait a minute. Wait, wait. Did you call me Kaplan? I know you're a man of many names, but I'm perfectly willing to accept your current choice. Current choice? My name is Thornhill. Roger Thornhill. There's never been anything else. Of course. So obviously, your friends picked up the wrong package when they bundled me out here in the car. Do sit down, Mr. Kaplan. Um, I'm, I'm curious what you think about him, Bob, because I think he is extremely convincing. I think the way he portrays the character is great. I'm just curious if at the end, was he good in this movie? I, like, I think he was solid, but he's probably the only character that I thought was like just fine in this movie. Yeah, I think that has more to do with the fact that he's never really developed as a villain. And Correct me if I'm wrong, Brad, but I never got a, a really great sense of what they were doing, what the bad guys were were really doing. They were smuggling microfilm uh, apparently out of the country 
But I don't know that I had a better sense of it than that. And part of it is that that's, you know, it's kind of like the MacGuffin in some ways that Hitchcock always talked about. Like, it's the thing that puts the plot in motion that everybody's after, but the audience doesn't care at all. Like, we care about Cary Grant hanging off the face of Thomas Jefferson or whatever. We don't care about some dumb microfilm. And I think because of that, James Mason's character kind of suffers a little bit. I think he does the best that he possibly can with it. And I think James Mason is a fantastic actor And he really did lay the template once again for some of these villains that we would get in later spy movies. The well-dressed, kind of cool, calm, collected, suave villain. And it makes for a better villain. Like when you watch a James Bond movie, again, like I just watched Goldfinger. I don't think that the character of Goldfinger is actually that intimidating of a villain. He's a fat slob. Like it, it just doesn't come across as a guy who's super in control. Whereas James Mason really comes across as a calculated, meticulous person. And I think he plays that aspect of it really, really well, even if he doesn't have quite as much to do. Yeah. And honestly, you see in, you know, Van Damme kind of the the exact opposite of Cary Grant. You you have his perfect counterpart, the 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 other man who is suave and intelligent and able to charm people, and yet he uses it to, you know, like you said, to steal secrets from the U.S. government, to sell them to other people. And and I really think that this might be one of the best uses of a MacGuffin, because while the, the audience knows about the MacGuffin, I don't think anybody is ever intrigued by what happens to these state secrets. Like, the the goal of the movie is to see, is Cary Grant going to live or die? Exactly. And is he going to get the girl? And, and so, not a single time are you actually bought into what's happening with these microfilms, you know, and if they're going to get away with them or not. You're always just concerned about the characters of the movie, and I think that's the biggest selling point for me in almost any film, but especially in North by Northwest. Yeah, I mean, it literally does not matter to the movie what these bad guys are doing, except and I will, you know, if I could get nitpicky for one second, Brad, except at the end of the film. And let me set the ending up a little bit. They have followed Van Damme and his cronies and Ava Marie Saint to Mount Rushmore, where the bad guys have like a hideout. It's not even a hideout. It's like a luxurious pad on top of Mount Rushmore and like back in the woods a little bit. They, they have a uh, maybe they were just Airbnb it, you know, exactly. They, they've got like a landing strip. There's an airplane that's going to come pick them all up, get them out of the country. And Van Damme basically finds out that Ava Marie Saint is a double agent. He plans on taking her in the airplane and then throwing her out. And so Cary Grant's trying his best to not let them get on the plane with Ava Marie Saint because he loves her. He wants to save her. Here's my question, though, Brad. The bad guys had the microfilm. Correct. And they were about to get on the plane and Cary Grant creates a diversion. Ava Marie Saint runs off and they all decide to not get on the plane and to instead chase Cary Grant and Ava Marie Saint and try to kill them. But I guess my question is like. At the end of the day, if you have the bad guy stuff to do the bad guy things and you have the getaway car ready to go and you could have gotten away scot free. Like, even if Ava Marie Saint and Cary Grant survive, why don't they just get in the plane and go? Well, have you never been in love, Robert? It's a crime of passion, (laughs) of course. You know, that was my only thing was like, wait a minute. Well, you know, if he's just going to kill her anyway 
and they're going to get away with it. Like, just get on the plane and fly to wherever you're going. And then you've stolen the state secrets successfully. Yeah. So I guess what you're saying is this is probably the first time ever. And it's probably never happened since in the history of cinema that a MacGuffin was revealed to not actually matter to the motivations of the characters (laughs) in the movie. It's the first and last time that we've ever seen characters act in ways that are contrary to logic. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) I think that the big problem is that you get the sense that Van Damme isn't actually in love with, with Eve Kendall. And that if he actually was and he didn't like, let's just say that he didn't know that she was a double agent and Cary Grant convinced her to not go on the plane and and he they ran off. I feel like that would have been more convincing to your question because then it's like, oh, no, that's my girl. She's getting away. Like, right. She's being kidnapped by this secret agent that I thought she killed. So, like, you know, I got I got to go get her. But you're right that I, I honestly had never even thought about that before. <laughs> but yeah, it's like, all right, she's a double agent. She can escape. Like, she doesn't know that much about our operation. Like, let's get out of here. Yeah. Let's get out of Dodge. And Exactly. Yeah. And then yeah. they would just win. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that you know that I am a villain at heart, Brad, I think it's probably time for us to hit pause here. When we come back from break, we're going to talk about Alfred Hitchcock, some of the more technical things about this movie that we love. But before that, Brad, we are sampling our first whiskey from the BTAC line today. What do you say we get into drinking this Thomas H. Handy? Let's get to it. Okay, so today we are trying Thomas H. Handy Sazerac Straight Rye Whiskey. This is a member of Buffalo Trace's Antique Collection, which is a collection they release every year. Uh, It's five different whiskeys that are like very high end, and they they do it to celebrate, you know, the, the ingenuity and the innovativeness of their company. And so when these come out every year, Brad, they are highly, highly allocated. They are highly sought after. I would say, aside from Pappy Van Winkle, these are probably the most sought after bourbons and ryes in the world, especially like on an annual basis. And so we are incredibly grateful and lucky to get our hands on a sample of this. What we're trying today is the 2019 release of the Thomas H. Handy Sazerac Rye. And we are trying it because of our friend Bourbon and Stuff for sending us a sample. So thank you so much to Bourbon and Stuff. We cannot thank you enough for this sample. Yeah, the the opportunity to try these just ridiculously allocated whiskeys is not lost on us at all. Uh, so thank you so much, Bourbon Stuff. Go give them a follow on Instagram. They're just a phenomenal page to check out if you love whiskey. All right, Brad. So just a little bit of background about Thomas H. Handy Sazerac. Uh, last season, when we started the season, I'm sure you'll remember this, but we tried Sazerac Rye, which is also known as Baby Saz. It is another rye that's made by the Sazerac company, uh, you know, slash Buffalo Trace. That's a six-year rye, and it clocks in at a lower proof than what we're drinking today. When you go to the next step up from Baby Saz, you basically have two options, and they're both in the Buffalo Trace Antique Collection. 
There is one that is called Sazerac Rye. It's Sazerac 18-year. And so what you get there is exactly what it sounds like. You get a rye whiskey that has been aged for 18 years. Uh, the problem is that that one is actually watered down to 90 proof, Brad. So I, to be quite honest with you, and I don't mean to sound snooty here, but like if I'm going to pay enough money for a BTAC, <laughs> I don't know that I want a 90 proof whiskey. Got a good old snooty Bob take here. Yeah, exactly. The <laughs> other route that you can go is to try this Thomas H. Handy, which is aged for just as long as Baby Saz, about six years. But it's barrel proof. So what we're drinking today, the 2019 release, is actually 125.7 proof. So essentially what you're what you're getting is the same thing you'd get in Baby Saz at barrel strength, as opposed to a greater age, which you would get with the Sazerac 18. Well, I don't know about you and all your fancy pants words, Bob, but I just want to drink me some good whiskey. And based on the nose of this thing, I have a feeling that we are in for a treat, my friend. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, Brad. This doesn't smell like super rye forward. And I think that's because the mash bill that they're using here is believed to be only 51% rye. So this is just barely over the line into being a rye whiskey. The The mash bill is 51 rye, 39% corn, and 10% malted barley. So it's a little bit higher of a barley content than I'm used to as well. And I think I can smell a little bit of that on here. This has a really kind of um, grainy, almost an oaty kind of nose to me. So there's like a little bit of that rye spice, but then you definitely get some more of that barley as well. And then it's really kind of nicely rounded out with that corn sweetness. I like this a lot, Brad. I Yeah, for me, I am getting just this incredibly strong note of like cherry and not necessarily mm. like a cherry cola or something like that. It's It's almost like a nice, light, just perfectly fresh cherry that you have like right as they come into season. That I'm I, for me, it's almost overpowering how much it smells like that. Yeah. See, for me, it's it's more floral than that. It's definitely got like some of that raw kind of oaty grains to it. And then a nice, a really fresh floral note on top of that, which is something that we typically only get on younger rise. And this is kind of right in that sweet point of like a six year rye where you would lose some of those young notes, but it still carries a lot of that fresh powdery floralness to it. I really like this a lot, Brad. I think I'm going to give this an eight and a half out of 10 on the nose. I will give it an eight and a half as well. Uh, let's let's take a sip of this bad boy. Let's do it. Well, damn, if that's not delicious. Holy crap. Mm. That is a rye. Brad, I don't know if I can use another word to describe this, but like if you were ever in choir or band and you understand how a crescendo works, I, I really think that this is kind of like when this first touched my palate, it really hit me on the tip of my tongue. There was some nice sweetness to it. It opened up into a more kind of creamy sweetness. And then the rye spice and the barrel grain hit. And it kind of just spread across my tongue. And as I swallowed, that's when the heat started to kick in. And it wasn't like an immediate punch of heat. It really did kind of feel like everything kind of grew or, or like expanded from the time it hit the tip of my tongue to the time I swallowed. It really opened up nicely. It started very kind of narrow on my tongue and then really expanded as it went. I don't know. Does that make sense? Like that analogy? Bob, I am right there with you. Literally, it hits your tongue. You get the sweetness. I got that flavor of cherry. And then literally I was like, oh, that's a little bit warm. Oh, wow. That's oh, oh my gosh. That is so warm. And it just built and built and built as you finish that whiskey. 
Like you said, it was creamy throughout. There is a little hint of those floral notes for me on the finish uh, as I kind of let it cool off um, yep. as, as the Kentucky hug was kind of kind of finishing. Bob, <laughs> this is spectacular. Listen, it's so, so here's, here's the struggle. Here's the struggle that I have, though. I hate Buffalo Trace <laughs> so much. So here's the struggle that I have. I keep forgetting that this is a rye because it's just bourbony enough to not make it known that it's a rye right off the bat. And so when I remind myself, no, no, this is a rye because those nice kind of the, you know, the, the grainy notes and then the oakiness really kind of drive that home on the back of the palate. Then I'm reminded, oh, this is fantastic. It's got everything I want in a rye. It's creamy. It's sweet. Then it goes oaky. Then it goes like rye forward. And then there's the heat on the end of it. And like you said, there's that floralness definitely on the back of the palate for me. I don't know that I can find fault in anything I'm drinking here, Brad. And I think I'm going to give this a very rare 10 out of 10 on the taste. Yeah, Bob, th- this, the the flavor profile on the palate is complex and yet balanced. It it hits mm-hmm. you where it needs to hit you and it holds back where it needs to hold back. Th- there's just something beautiful happening here. And I, I'm going to give it a 10 out of 10 too, man. This is, this is wild. I, I will say, if you are not a fan of the flavor of rye, of like rye bread, of that rye grain, you're not going to like this because about midway through my palate, as it's as it's kind of getting close to the finish, all of a sudden it is the strongest rye flavor I think I've ever had in my life. Hmm. And yet it's not overpowering. It doesn't blow away all the other Yeah, it's flavors. not like a souring. Exactly. You can tell that it has been aged. It's aged that sourness out of it. And instead, you're able to finish with a little bit of that floral kind of delicate flavor that isn't overpowered by the hefty amount of rye that you get in the mid palate. So I'll say this, Brad, once you pointed out that note of cherry, I really taste that right on the front of the palate. And for me, if I could kind of like Frankenstein a version of you know, uh, Frankenstein, a bunch of whiskeys together to create the palate that I'm experiencing here. It's like drinking the Traverse City cherry on the tip of my mm-hmm. tongue. And then the finish and what lingers on your palate after you swallow it, it reminds me of the few whiskey uh, immortal rye. Like there's just some really great dark huh. kind of tea, coffee, chocolatey notes that linger with that dark barrel kind of uh, flavor on your tongue. And the combination of those two and then boosting it up to barrel proof as well has just done wonders for this whiskey. Like I said, it's a 10 out of 10 on the flavor. In terms of the finish, I really can't find much fault with that either. I think it is a bit of a step down from the taste, but that's not saying much because <laughs> the, the taste is incredible. So I think on the finish, there's there's a nice chest burn on the way down. The flavor that's left in your mouth is is very rye forward, but again, not souring, not overly like dill heavy or anything like that. Not so much even minty. It's just you can tell you're drinking a rye and there's a bit of, of wood grain to it, uh, but it's very, very pleasant. I think I'll give it an eight and a half on the finish. I think I'm going to give it a nine and a half on the finish, Bob. The, this thing just, it, it powers down so well. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> this is going to sound dumb, but it makes me think about when Obi-Wan is turning off the power generator or the shield generators, and there's that <laughs> the most perfect, yeah. like, sound engineering moment <laughs> in movie history. 
And that's what it feels like is happening in my soul as this finishes on the palette. Yeah. I, I'm going to give it a nine and a half out of 10. I'll agree it's not quite the heights of the heights that the flavor is, but man, oh man, is it good. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to round mine up to a nine on the finish now that I've heard you talk. Uh, I, I really think that you have swayed me a bit here. Ah, uh, so um, the Star Wars reference convinced you. That's huh? what did it, man. This do, this also has just, <laughs> and I hate to keep comparing it to other whiskeys, but this has a little bit of the funk that you get on some like Willet releases as well. Like even their bourbons. I was thinking about Noah's Mill a little bit when I drank this. And Brad, we haven't sampled that on the podcast yet, but it has this really beautiful kind of dustiness to it. And I think this has just a bit of that kind of undergirding everything. It makes it seem like a more well-aged rye than it actually is. There's a there's like a, a certain smell when you walk into a Rick house in Kentucky. Like if you've ever been on, like, say, the Woodford Reserve Tour there's just like there's the dust and there's the sawdust and there's the wood that has this just this very particular kind of mustiness to it. And it kind of carries over into the taste sometimes. And I, I'm just like transported back to taking tours at some of these distilleries. And that's what that reminds me of. And so, I mean, like, you know, segueing us into the, the balance here, Brad, this is one of the best balanced whiskeys we've had this season. I think the nose didn't quite signal how complex this would be on the the taste and the finish uh, i wish the nose had a little bit more to it but ultimately like if you're gonna say it can smell good and taste meh or it can smell meh and taste great like i would always take the second you know what i mean so i think overall right. on the balance i think i'm gonna give it a nine out of ten i bob i think that this is one of the most well-balanced whiskeys i've ever had due to how complex the flavors are and yet, how beautifully they complement each other. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to give it a 10 out of 10 on balance. And I, I think one thing for me about the nose is that I started nosing this again, like right before. I still have a little bit left in my glass. I took a nose of it and I still got a hint of that cherry. But after having drank some of it, I am getting that beautiful, musty, rye smell that I'm tasting on the palate. And it's just a phenomenal nose. You know, it ages well as you move your way through the glass. So I'm going to say it. This is probably the best balanced whiskey I've ever had. And I'm going to give it a 10 out of 10. All right. And that takes us to the problematic side of things, which comes across in the form of our value category. Now, when Buffalo Trace releases this, it comes with an MSRP of $99. So in states like Ohio, where everything is price controlled and the state allocates it via a lottery, you can get this for $99 if your name is drawn. Okay. And Brad, I will say this at $99, this is a 10 out of 10 value. This is one of the best rye whiskeys I have ever had. It is incredibly complex. It is a great special occasion whiskey. It will not disappoint. I will give this a 10 if you can get it at, at cost, right? I, Bob, I would turn that score up to 11. Yeah. However, if you Google right now, Thomas H. Handy 2019 and click on the shopping tab, because it's a year old, because all of the ones that have been floating out there have been picked up, uh, the cheapest that you can get a bottle of this right now online, Brad, is $599.99. It is not uncommon to see Thomas H. Handy at this price. And I will say this as well. Handy is usually one of the more readily available ones in the BTAC lineup that you might, you know, see on a shelf somewhere collecting dust. So there's some BTACs that go for like $1,000. 
Brad, I am never going to suggest somebody pays $600 for a bottle of whiskey, especially when that's not even MSRP. And it is six times more than MSRP. And so the problem is like, how do I evaluate accurately what someone's going to pay for this? And how do I give a score based on that? And so if it's $600, it's a zero out of 10. If it's $99, it's a 10 out of 10. I guess, Brad, that I kind of have to fall in the middle here and give it like a five out of 10 on value because the chances of you getting this at SRP are next to none. If you can find it for even $200, I would say this is still like a six to a seven out of 10 on value. But anything more than that, I just can't recommend people paying that much for this whiskey. It's just, it's unfair to consumers to ask that much. So I'm going to give it a five out of 10 on value. Yeah, I, I was kind of in the same place as you, Bob. I, I think I would pay upwards of $250 for this bottle, which is saying quite a bit yeah. because you and I both know we are uh, pretty discerning purchasers <laughs> when it comes to how much money we have because it ain't much. Right. And so I, I look at this and I go, man, I, I'm willing to pay upwards of $250 for a bottle like this because it is that good. I really think this might be the best whiskey we've ever had on the podcast. However, I think I'm in the same place as you. If you, here's the hard thing. The only people I feel like I could be wrong, but the only people who are going to buy this at $600 are the people for whom $600 is like $200. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like it might not, it might not be nothing, but it's close to it. And so I I don't know. For that person, I probably still would give it like a seven or eight out of ten. Like, yeah, if you have that kind of money to spend, go right. for it. Well, let me, so let me I, ask it in this way, Brad. Man. If you go to a bar and they have this on the shelf, right, they're going to charge you, I would say, Ooh. somewhere between 30 and $40 for a pour. And it will probably only be a yeah. one ounce pour. It'll be exactly how much we had today. If I were to charge you $30 let's say $35 for what you just drank. What kind of score would you give that on the value? Hmm. Nine out of 10. Yeah. I think I'd still give it like an eight out of 10. I, I would definitely pay $35 for yep. a one to one and a half ounce. Yep. Pour. I would yeah. too. And I think that might be the best way to evaluate this with something that's this allocated. You're only probably going to be able to get this by the poor. And for 35 to 40 bucks, if it's your birthday, if it's an anniversary, this is a damn good whiskey and it is absolutely worth that money. And so Brad, that is putting me out to a 44 and a half out of 50. And if we're using your nine out of 10 score on the value, what's that putting you out to? I am at the highest score in film and whiskey history by far. I think, I, I mean, I think your 44 and a half might've been the highest <laughs> score. Uh, I'm at a 47 out of 50, Bob. Wow. I, I think this might be the first time we've had a whiskey go above 90. We had it uh, once on our, with on the Keats Rubin 14, but I will say well, that's, this, that's this is that Keats Rubin 14 is it's good. good. This is a, a way better whiskey than the Keats Rubin 14. The reason the Keats yes. Rubin 14 hit the 40 plus mark or the, or the 90 plus mark out of a hundred is because of the value on it. This value is nowhere near as good as the Keats Rubin's value, but this is a like, don't kid yourselves. This is a significantly better whiskey than the Keats Rubin. So that is bringing us out to a 91.5 out of 100 or a 45.75 out of 50. This is just, it, it's a phenomenal whiskey. If you can find Thomas H. Handy 2019 at a whiskey bar, give it a try. Now, again, with the caveat, there's a different batch every year. 
not every year is as good as this. I mean, I, I guess I don't know. I've never tried it. But, you know, like from year to year, there is variation. So we are drinking the 2019. Consider it like a vintage with wine. And just know that, like, if you find the 2019 on a shelf somewhere, give it a try. I will say, Bob, I would be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity to say, like, why do you got to make such daggone good whiskey? I mean, just great, phenomenal whiskey and then make it impossible for the average consumer to get a hold of. I know. Like, does does every whiskey drinker out there have to start a podcast and get like just barely famous enough so that people will send you a a few ounces of BTAC? Right. Like, I, and I'm not saying that in any way to, to like, I, I'm not saying that to put down like bourbon and stuff or anybody else who has this and wants to send it like that. Like, I think it's wonderful that the whiskey community collaborates like this, but they shouldn't have to. I, I think that's what I'm getting at. They shouldn't have to free the BTAC collection, make more <laughs> of it. I, I don't know. Free my I, boy BTAC. That's right. I just feel like they could make more money off of this if they made it just a little more widely available. They would sell so many more bottles of it. I I don't know. Does it really cost that much for them, for this massive company like Buffalo Trace to reserve a little bit more of their rickhouse for some really great aged whiskey? I, I don't know. Well, on that note, Brad, I think it is time for us to get back into talking about North by Northwest. This has been our longest whiskey segment ever on the Film and Whiskey podcast. But darn it, I think it's for a good reason, because this may be, I need to check our notes, this might be the highest rated whiskey we've ever had, Brad. So what a great way to end season three. Thank you again to Bourbon and Stuff. And Brad, let's get back into talking about the movie. All right, so that was Thomas H. Handy, Sazerac, Rye, maybe the best whiskey we've ever had. And we're getting back into talking about a movie that we both love. But Brad, in comparison to this whiskey, damn, I don't know how this movie's ever going to live up to, to the whiskey that we just had. But you know what? It's still a darn good movie. And I think we have a lot to talk about here. For me, Brad, Alfred Hitchcock's instincts as a director, you know, are, are maybe unparalleled in the history of cinema. He just knows exactly how to cut a scene, how to frame a shot, when to move the camera, when not to move the camera. And this movie was like watching a director, like it was like watching a kid playing on a playground. Like he was just having so much fun. You know, there's the scene where uh, the whole sequence where Cary Grant goes to the UN building and the guy gets knifed in the back. And it's, it's this incredible, like wrong place, wrong time sequence. And he really draws not just the comedy, but the suspense out of that scene. And then when Cary Grant goes to run away, there's this incredible shot that is basically all matte painting with like a little moving figure in the bottom where Cary Grant is running out of the UN building. And it's looking at him from like a God's eye view. And he's like this little dot coming across the ground. And I just loved the way some of these shots are composed, the way the lines work in this movie. From, you know, you get it from the very first, like the opening credits, the the kind of diagonal lines on the building. We're like right in the middle of the, the mid-century modern architecture movement right now. The way the house is designed at the end of the movie. It looks so sleek and so, you know, chic 
And yet I love the way that Hitchcock composes so many of these shots with these kind of diagonal lines running through things. It gives this sense of like, you know, the movie's called North by Northwest. I kept thinking about like a compass or like a, a sense of directionality to like all of the shots. It looked like the way that these shot these lines were coming through the shots that people are traveling northeast and northwest and southeast. And it's just this really cool kind of almost like watching things move across a map. And I loved the way this movie looked visually. I think the thing that that really hits me visually is how similar and yet different this movie is from Vertigo. Mm -hmm. You know, like you said, Vertigo was the previous movie that that Hitchcock had done. And that movie just has such a dark kind of ambiance to the film and the color palette that he uses that this movie has it's a little bit brighter it's a little bit flashier you see them moving in these these crazy locations you know like mount rushmore that god's eye view of cary grant running away from the un building you just feel a sense of lightheartedness just in the way that this is shot that aids cary grant when he's making the you know self-deprecating jokes and when he's jumping into the hospital and and these women are telling him to stop like there there's just a way that the the visual nuance of this movie draws out these characters that are just so well written mm -hmm. well and and then there's the way that hitchcock can just tell a story visually like the whole crop duster sequence the most famous sequence in the whole movie cary grant gets off that bus and he's just standing there and I'd say it's probably a solid four to five minutes before that crop duster attacks him. But you're just getting these really wide vistas of like what's around him. There's no dialogue spoken. That guy comes across the street and they're just kind of looking at each other for a while. There's still no dialogue spoken. It is incredibly drawn out to, to really amp up the suspense. And then when that airplane starts attacking him, it's just like it's so unexpected. It's the most inventive unseen kind of enemy to be attacking Cary Grant. And I love the shot where, you know, some of the shots you can kind of tell that Cary Grant's like in a studio and there's just like rear projection of a plane behind him. But then there's that one fantastic shot where the camera is like pull. You can tell the camera is like on a dolly and someone's pulling it and Cary Grant is running down the street away from the, the plane. And you just see the plane come from behind him from being very, very small to diving directly at him. And it's just the most cinematic shot. Even on my TV last night, I was like, whoa, that was awesome. And I can't imagine what it must have looked like to see that on the big screen done practically. And I, I like it just reminds me that Hitchcock is one of the most incredible visual storytellers of all time. And honestly, that scene, as you were describing it, I was like, you know who I really want to see do like a remake of just that scene is like Tarantino. Like, I, I feel like that is something that Tarantino learned from. And I think he talks about this, that Hitchcock is just the master of suspense. And like you said, that scene, it almost feels lighthearted, another lighthearted action set that, you know, oh, Cary Grant getting away from the bad guys. And yet there's so much tension in that scene from the silence, from the innocuous conversation between him and the man that he, he assumes is Kaplan for a second. And then this plane attacks him. I don't know. There's just something in me that wants to see Tarantino somehow take that scene and kill 17 people <laughs> in a bloody massacre. Well, but the funny thing about that, too, Brad, is that that scene on its face is just ridiculous. Like, it's an absurd murder plot. Oh, yeah. Like, there's no reason for them to go. It's so elaborate and over the top and kind of wasteful 
And like, how did they know exactly when to start flying the plane? It's just like it. They, you can't think about that kind of stuff. It's just pure cinema to watch it and just get into the adrenaline of it. And I think that you have to have a filmmaker of this caliber to pull that off without it seeming ridiculous. And in the moment, it doesn't. But Brad, I, I'm really I'm really happy you brought up Tarantino because as I was watching this movie, I made a note because I was thinking like, this seems kind of familiar. Like there's something about this idea of in the second half of the movie, Cary Grant goes from from saying like, no, I'm Roger Thornhill to acting like Kaplan. Like he he takes on the role of Kaplan and you watch this character of Thornhill basically become an actor. He's pretending. And it reminded me a lot of the last half of Django Unchained, where we see the character of Django go from being, you know, this runaway slave to pretending to be somebody else so that he can try to get his wife out of Candyland. And I really, really liked thinking about the comparison in the way that both of those stories are structured because they do have this, there's this really fun sense of being in on the prank or in on the joke when you watch the protagonist of your movie pretend to be somebody else for an extended period of time. And it really reminded me of Django. Well, and it also feels like a little bit of a snide, like self-commenting like script, right? That it's almost like a referendum on Hollywood of like, here, here, watch this Hollywood actor pretend to be a marketing executive pretending to be a U.S. you know governmental <laughs> spy. Right. I don't It's almost like a, a wink, wink, look at me type of humor that, you know, not everybody's going to get, but it's amusing when when you see it. Well, Brad, I think we have talked long enough about this movie. It's time for us to give our final, final scores of season three. So where are you coming out on North by Northwest? Bob, I... This is one of those movies where there's really not much to complain about. I, I don't know of any specific part of this movie that I'm disappointed in or I'm like, man, I what was Hitchcock thinking? It's pretty much a perfect movie. And yet, I don't think I can give it a 10 out of 10. Mm. I, I'm going to give it a nine and a half out of 10. I, I've always loved this movie. I think the acting, the script, the cinematography, the colors, the, the music. We haven't even talked about the, oh, the Bernard main Bernard Herrmann's music is great. It is phenomenal. Although some of the th like one of the things I noticed too, like when the guys were falling off Mount Rushmore, he used the exact same uh, chord that he used in Vertigo a year earlier when when they were mm -hmm. doing like the that that cool zoom you know dolly shot when when Jimmy Stewart would get Vertigo, and I'm, I just thought it was funny because like they must have just thought well no one saw Vertigo anyway so I'm just going to reuse this really cool <laughs> you know what I mean yeah. I really liked this sound piece and nobody heard it. So <laughs> we're just going to do it again. We're just going to do it again. But in the end, Bob, I, I almost think we need to do like a patron bonus episode where we talk about what makes a movie a 10 out of 10, hmm. right? Like what, like what is the it factor that bumps a movie up from a nine or a nine and a half to a 10 out of 10? Cause there's not much of a difference, but usually it's just some sort of gut feeling. And I, I think that could be an interesting topic of conversation. Yeah. And I feel like we kind of also have to admit, Brad, that, you know, I've talked about this with movie critics before. And I think we, we've we started to do it a little bit, too, that like movies that don't have something to say about like society or whatever, we, we tend to penalize them. And I don't know why, because this movie is just it's like perfect action set piece after perfect action set piece. It's broken up so nicely into these incredible sequences where you get resolution at the end of each sequence. And it's just like it's like getting a dopamine hit every 15 minutes in this movie. It's so, so good. And yet you're right. There's something about it that I don't want to give it a 10 out of 10 either. 
And I'm also coming out to a nine and a half on this movie. I will say, like, from a pure entertainment standpoint, I might think I might actually prefer this over Psycho just for pure entertainment value. And it's probably on par with Rear Window for me on entertainment value. And yet I would probably rank it maybe fourth out of all four of those movies. And I don't know why. So, yeah, yeah. This, this might be a good a bonus episode for our patrons. If you are interested in hearing us talk about that, you can become a member on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash film whiskey. For as little as $3 a month, you will get exclusive content from us. Yeah, our Patreon account really allows us to continue to up the quality of our podcast uh, just so that we can bring you guys better content. Uh, we love what we do here, and we'd love if you took an opportunity to support us. But if you want to just talk about this episode, some North by Northwest, the finishing of season three for us, go ahead and give us a shout out on any of our social media pages. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Film Whiskey. We are so grateful that you have hung in there with us for three full seasons. We're going to be taking some time off in the interim. We're going to fill the next couple of weeks with some interviews that we've recorded, but we will not be back to launch season four until the beginning of March. So keep an eye out for these cool bonus episodes we're releasing as interviews. Uh, but Brad and I are going to take some well-earned time off. We are so, so grateful for Film & Whiskey Nation for being along on this ride with us. We're gearing up to, to do some really big things in season four, and we cannot wait. So we're coming out on a nine and a half out of ten for North by Northwest. We will be back next week to eliminate some movies from existence in our season-ending bracket challenge so please stick around for that next week for the film and whiskey podcast i'm bob book i'm brad g and we'll see you next time <laughs>